I'd like to, you to turn in your Bibles, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. I want to read just a couple of verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, if you use the Black Bible and, and the racks on page 1387. Romans chapter 8, beginning at, at verse 14. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And may the Holy Spirit bless our hearts and our minds with the wonderful truth that we're going to be looking at this morning, that we are God's children. This has to be one of the most beautiful, one of the most richest passages in all the Bible. It talks about our relationship with God. The key word is adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters of God. What it means to be a member of God's family. You'll notice in verse 14, it says that we are sons of God. And of course, that also includes daughters of God. And in verse 16, it says we are the children of God. And all this is true because we have been adopted into God's family. Adoption is a rich word, as you know. It's a word that's filled with love. It's filled with grace and mercy. And of course, in a basic sense, adoption is a legal action whereby a person is taken into a family, into a family usually not related to the person being adopted. And when taken into that family, he or she is given all the rights, all the privileges, all the love and everything that goes along as being a member of that family. Now, in the Old Testament, we find three particular significant accounts of a biblical case of adoption. And the first case of adoption is in Exodus chapter 2. Go clear back to the, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 2. It's on page 65 in the Bibles on the rack. Exodus chapter 2, of course, this is the familiar account of Moses. Uh, of Moses. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived, and she bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Of course, it was the law of the land by Pharaoh that all the male Hebrew children that are born be killed, and so she hid him. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now look at verse 10. 
The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. And so Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And it was God's plan through adoption to put Moses in the most strategic place. The adopted Moses would be the deliverer deliverer of Israel. So next look at me in the second chapter of Esther. Esther chapter 2 verse 5. If you're trying to find Esther, I believe it's right before, yeah, right before the big book of Job. (laughs) So if you find Job, turn back to the book of Esther, page 579 in the Bibles in the rack. Verse 5 of the second chapter of Esther. It says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa, a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. And here again, God has a a strategic plan in mind through adoption, a very strategic time and place. You remember from Esther, Mordecai said to her, maybe you've been brought here for what? Such a time as this. Esther is most marvelously adopted into Mordecai's family that she too might be a deliverer of Israel while in Persia. It was the strategic place in her life in that pagan nation that really saved the lives of the people of Israel. So we have two strategic examples of adoption which serve God's purposes of deliverance for his people. But we find a different kind of adoption in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, page 367. If you memorize the books of the Bible, remember it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then first and second, 2 Samuel. In chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we find the most tender, what I believe the most loving adoption story in all of Scripture. We might understand how Pharaoh's daughter, when she would hear that crying and she would came and open that basket and would be sympathetic to a, a little Hebrew baby floating in a basket in the reeds and she'd long to have a child of her own. And we might say that's an adoption out of sympathy. And then in the case of Mordecai and Esther, we might say, well, that was an adoption out of responsibility. Here's a young girl whose parents are dead. She's related to Mordecai, and she feels responsible to take care of her. But in 2 Samuel, we find an adoption that was strictly out of love, out of mercy. And King David is the key to this adoption. Here's an adoption strictly and only out of love, and this is most like our own adoption as God's children. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that it may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now remember Saul, the house of Saul. David had an arch enemy in Saul. And repeatedly Saul had done everything he could do within his power to try to kill David. Saul's life was 
a great tragedy. He was proud, he was jealous, he was murderous, he was insane. And Saul despised and hated David and followed him and chased him all over creation, as it were, to try to kill him. But Saul's son, Jonathan, loved David, and David loved Jonathan. And for the sake of Jonathan, David says, or asks, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, David wants to extend kindness to the house of his enemy for the sake of Jonathan. So verse 2, he says, it says, Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your your servant. And, of course, by now, Saul's house had been pretty well decimated. Verse 3, the king said to Ziba, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness, show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now, Ziba says that Jonathan had a son, and the son is lame. The backstory of that is in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. When Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, and their bodies were posted on the wall at Beth, Beth Shan, a nurse picked up the five-year-old son of Jonathan and was fleeing the city uh, with this son. And, and she fell, and fell with the child, and as a result of the, the fall, The son was left lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And from the time he was five, he was crippled in his feet. And so Ziba tells David that there is this one grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, who's lame in his feet, and there's sort of a disdain in the tone here. Well, all we've got's one crippled boy, and that's about it, one crippled guy. But verse 4, David responds to Ziba. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. The name Lodibar means the barren land. Literally, it means no pasture. Lo is no. Debar is, is pasture. Here's a guy out in the barren land who's part of the enemy. He's crippled. He's not anyone who carries any weight in society. He's an insignificant man in an insignificant place. He, he lives as a cripple out in the, the barren land. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machiar, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore you to all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Now look at the response of Mephibosheth in in all of this in in verse 8. Again, he prostrated himself and said, Get the picture here. Here's a guy who's lame in both feet. I don't even know how he was staying up. But he immediately goes to the floor. He prostrates himself and says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Here was a man who had been beaten down so many times 
that he felt like he was nothing more than a dead dog. Now, in the Middle East, they don't have dogs for pets. And so when you in the Middle East call yourself a dog, that's the absolute worst thing you could do. Dogs in the Middle East are kicked all over the place. You might want to walk up and pet a dog in that part of the country, that part of the world, but the dog will cringe and cower and run away. And a dead dog is all Mephibosheth can see of himself. So when he comes into David's presence, he throws himself on the floor. He feels totally unworthy. He gets up. David says some more stuff and down he goes again. But David is not giving the land back to him because he's worthy. Mephibosheth's grandfather Saul had done everything possible to try to kill David. And this poor guy had been looked down upon his whole life for so many years of life. This has got to be 14 or 15 years after Jonathan's death. He's been looked down on so long that he sees himself nothing more than a dead dog. Verse 9. Then the king called Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. David gave back everything to Meshibosheth that belonged to King Saul and his house. Verse 10, you and your son, still speak to Ziba, and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson will have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So now you got 35 servants working for this guy. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all my Lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that grace? Isn't that mercy and love? He sat at the king's table as one of the king's sons. He's an adopted son. David adopts him. In verse 9, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Zebo were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. You know, that's one of those things. Can you really believe that? In that culture where they threw out people who were crippled, yet he ate at the king's table. That's the wonderful thing. Here's an adoption. An adoption of grace, an adoption of mercy, an adoption of love. And there's something here that we don't want to miss. When we see this story, we see how analogous, I shouldn't try that word, analogous it is to our adoption, how much like it's our adoption, our adoption into the family of God. And I want you to get a sense of that analogy. David took the initiative here, right? He, it all came from him. It didn't come from Mephibosheth. And the Lord takes the initiative in adopting us. Ephesians 1.5 says, The Lord predestined us, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God takes the initiative. And then David showed mercy to one who was totally unworthy, one who had descended from the evil enemy. And so does the Lord seek among the children of the devil His sons to adopt. And then David was motivated by love for Jonathan. In our case, God was motivated by love for Christ. 
and he redeemed us for Christ's sake. It says, and David desired to show kindness. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says that we have been saved in order that God might show us eternal kindness. And then David chose somebody who was way outside of the standard of perfection. And so God chooses those who are way outside the standard of perfection. And, oh, and by the way, the name Mephibosheth means a shameful thing. A shameful thing. And he lived in Lodibar, which means the barren land, a place of no pasture. He was a nobody from nowhere and those are just the kinds of people that God takes as his sons and daughters. And then there's the great climax. David brought him to his own table to feed him as one of his own. And so does the Lord bring us to his table. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb, but even this morning, the Lord is bringing us to his table. And David gave him an inheritance, and so the Lord does promise to us. And the analogy goes on and on and on. So now we can go back to Romans chapter 8, the 16th verse of the 8th chapter of Romans. As you're turning to that, I want you to think about this. I wonder if Mephibosheth ever had a day when he didn't believe he was the son of the king. Day after day, he sat at the king's table in the honored place of a son. Day after day, Ziba and the other servants, 35 of them, tended his land. Day after day, he experienced all that it means to be an adopted son of the king. And it really is sad that that's not the daily experience of so many of God's children. And so the Apostle Paul knew that we needed assurance. We need assurance that we are the children of God. So Paul writes in verse 16 of Romans chapter 8, 16th verse, the children, or the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And our question is, or should be, how did Paul come to this assurance that we are children of God? How do we know that we've been adopted into God's family for all eternity? How do we know, as it says in verse 17, that as God's children, we are heirs of God. We are fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. In other words, that everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to us because we're fellow heirs. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says there is a witness or the testimony of the Spirit of God. Well, what is that witness or testimony? And for that, we go back to verse 14 of Romans chapter 8, because verses 14 and 15 give us two characteristics of those who are indeed the children of God. All God's children will exhibit these two characteristics. These are two marks of being adopted by God. And the first mark of a child of God is, we can put it this way, the Spirit leads us into holiness. If we are a child of God, the Spirit of God leads us into holiness. The first mark is in verse 14. For all who have been led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit of God may very well be the most distinct and specific answer in Scripture to the question, who is a child of God? Who is a child of God? Well, a child of God is one who is being led by the Spirit of God. And here Paul is stating in the positive what he stated in the very negative last week. 
In contrast to those whose lives are controlled by their sinful nature, their lower nature, their lower passions. And in contrast to them are those who allow themselves to be led by the Spirit of God. Who is a child of God? It's not those who live according to the flesh and who live to carry out their fleshly desires. It's those who are led by the Spirit. In other words, as opposed to those who are taken into sin, being led by their fleshly nature, the children of God are led by the Spirit into holiness, into righteousness. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into all the ways that the Spirit of God leads us. One of the most beautiful ways is, and we spent several weeks on this quite a few years ago now, when we were talking about Jesus as the shepherd, as he leads us in John chapter 10, how we are led by Jesus as our guide and our protector And we don't have time to go into all those ways, but we can be assured of this. The Holy Spirit leads us into holiness, into holiness. You see, Paul is explaining verse 13 and how it applies to the matter of assurance. So so go back to verse 13 of Romans 8 for a minute. It says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So in the context here in verse 14, when it's talking about being led by the Spirit, it's not talking so much about how the Holy Spirit will lead us to one college or another, or lead us who who to marry, or to one career or another. And, And of course, the Holy Spirit does lead us in those ways, but Paul is specifically saying that if the Holy Spirit is leading you, He leads you to put to death the sinful deeds of the body, and that is evidence that you are a child of God. He's leading you in to righteousness. Because Paul wants us to know that that no one who is living according to the flesh kills his sin on the heart level, really deals with it at the, the heart level. Now, there's some legalists, there's some ascetics that give up everything, and they may control their sin outwardly so that they can look good to others, but they are really filled with pride about their own performance. They don't kill their sin to glorify God, they kill their sin to glorify themselves. But here's Paul saying that if the Spirit is leading you to kill your sin on the heart level, on the thought level, out of a desire to please and glorify God who saved you, that is evidence that you are his child. And so to be led by the Holy Spirit means to have the whole direction of your life determined by his Spirit, that we will have the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. Does that mean we get it perfectly? No. But that is going to be the direction of our lives. And to help us understand this further, the Apostle Paul reminds us of our adoption as God's children. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So one mark of being a child of God is that we are led into holiness by the Holy Spirit. Another mark is that the Holy Spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship to God. Before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. We served sin. We had to serve sin because we were slaves to sin. And we were destined to die as sinners. It was a fearful existence. Slavery is always fearful. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, paid the entire debt of our sin. 
We were bought off the auction block of slavery to sin. He bought us with the price of his blood, and we were adopted into God's family. Just think of that picture just for a minute. You were on the auction block of sin. And you might think back to some of the drawings or paintings you've seen of slavery auction blocks in, in our country in the, in the, the 1800s and the 19th century and the horribleness of all that sin and slavery and all that means. And then somebody comes along and says, I've paid your entire debt. I've paid it all. Now, will you come and will you be my dear son? My dear daughter. Now, in Roman society, adoption had certain consequences. First of all, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in the new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. And it followed in Roman society that he became an heir to his father's estate. Even if other sons were afterwards born, it did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with all the sons. And in Roman law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. The old life was completely wiped out. For instance, all debts were canceled. I like that part. Anybody looking for adoption here <laughs> lately in the Roman way? He was regarded as a brand new person entering into a brand new life in which the past had nothing to do. And lastly, in the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of his new father. When we are adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ, there is complete and absolute severance. Severance with our old life. Severance with who we were, what we did before we came to Christ. And then the new father exercises authority over the new son. And the new son enters into the privilege and responsibilities of the natural son. Now, in Roman society, adults were often adopted. If a man did not have an heir or a son who was capable of being his heir, he would adopt an adult and bestow upon him everything that it meant to be his legitimate son. Many of you remember the movie Ben-Hur, or you read the book, where, where Judah Ben-Hur, falsely accused of trying to kill the Roman centurion, uh, found himself as a galley slave. You know, And there's that part in, in the movie Ben-Hur where they're banging on the drum so they can row, boom, 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 boom. And all my kids at that same same time go, I hate rowing. <laughs> yeah, because he's a galley slave in, in the most horrible conditions and he's lived there for years, malnourished and whipped and beaten and hated. And then during a battle, a naval battle, the, the ship is sunk and Judah Ben-Hur saves the life of the tribune. Tribune or Tribune, the, the one who is over all the, the armies and, and navies of, of, of Rome at, at that point. And so Judah Ben-Hur is eventually adopted by the, the Tribune and becomes his son, is given the ring of the Tribune, the signet ring uh, of the family. And so you could say to Judah Ben-Hur, you have nothing to fear anymore. You were a slave, but now... You are his son. Mephibosheth, you have nothing to fear. 
Your dead dog life is gone, has nothing to do with you anymore. Child of God, you have nothing to fear. You were a slave to sin, but now you are a son or a daughter of God. When the Holy Spirit enables us to believe in Christ and to understand our new standing as adopted sons and daughters of God, all the privileges of being a child of God apply to us and result in a great change in us. We have a new legal standing before God. We're children of the King. We have access to the King. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have a new legal status before God. And all of that means that now we have a new relationship with God as Father. And so the third mark or characteristic of being a child of God is that the Spirit prompts us in our prayers to call God Father, to call Him Father. Paul says as a result of our adoption, that by the Spirit of God we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, cry out here is a very emotional word. And it's used about 40 times in the Psalms, in the Greek version of the Psalms. It means to cry out. It means to scream. It means to cry for help, to cry out in trouble, to cry out in need, to cry out in affliction. God's adopted children often cry out to God as Father, when we are in need. Abba, Father, combines the Aramaic and Greek words for Father. Jesus addressed God the Father this way in, in Mark 14, 36, as He prayed out, as He cried out to the Father in the garden of Gethsemane just before His arrest. He taught His followers to pray as pray to God as our Father who is in heaven. When Paul applies Abba, Father, to us as adopted children, it means that we can draw near to God in our distress, in our time of need, with the same sense of intimacy and assurance of being heard that Jesus had. Now, Dr. James Boyce points out that in the Old Testament, the word Father was only used of God only 14 times in the entire Old Testament, and it was never used in a personal sense. A good Jew would never think of referring to God as Father. In Jesus' time, even God's name was so reverenced that the Jews would not even pronounce it. So they would substitute Lord, Adonai, instead of Yahweh when they came to the Scriptures. And so if you're reading the Hebrew where you want to say the Lord God, you go Adonai, Adonai, because you cannot pronounce the other the word. But Jesus always addressed God as Father. Except when He cried out on the cross as He bore our sins and said, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And astoundingly, he taught us to pray our Father. As children of God, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the Aramaic word for Father that was used only within the family. I could call my beloved Father Abba, but I'd never call somebody else's Father Abba. It was a term of endearment within the family. It could mean, my dear Father. As God's children, we cry out, Father, my dear Father. And it speaks of intimacy and dependency upon our Heavenly Father. So we come to Him as a little child does to His Father, knowing that He loves us. He delights to meet our needs. We come to Him as Abba. But we also come before Him reverently, as Father, we come to Him as our Father who is in heaven, whose name is to be hallowed. 
whose name is, is holy. He is the sovereign of the universe, and his name is holy. J.I. Packer has a wonderful chapter in his book, Knowing God. And if you haven't read the book, Knowing God by Packer, that, that's an RBD. You know what that means? Read before death. <laughs> that's one that really everybody should read. And in that chapter, The Sons of God, he writes on the subject of our adoption as children of the Father. And pa Packer writes, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. So the Holy Spirit assures us by confirming the promises of the gospel to us teaching us through the word that we are God's adopted children. And that is such, we can cry out to him in any need, whatever our need is, as a loving father, knowing that he cares for us. Shall we pray? Father, it is such a wonderful thing that you didn't choose us because we had anything going for us. You didn't love us because we were lovely, but it was quite the obvious op opposite. Father, you didn't look upon us like there was anything we could add to heaven or creation or, or to the world. But Father, you looked upon us as David looked upon Mephibosheth. Out of love, out of mercy, out of grace. And you took us to live as your adopted, loved children of God. And you invited us to partake at your table. Father, that's what we're going to do here in just a few moments. We're going to gather, as it were, at the table of the Lord where we've been invited because we are your children. Father, it is such a privilege. It is such a wonder of how much you have loved us. Father, as we come to the table of the Lord, we pray that you will give us a little bit of insight and a little bit more knowledge of, of what this means as your ch to come as your children. And all that you have to offer, beginning with Jesus Christ, dying for our sins, paying all the penalty, separating us completely from the old life of what we were. And now we can live and move and breathe as your beloved children. 
And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.